Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome back Jungian analyst, writer, and wise woman, Anne Baring. Some of you might remember that I spoke to Anne a couple years back on episode 11. And with everything that's going on in the world, I really wanted to check in with Anne to see what kind of wisdom she has to offer us at this critical moment in our history as a global community. Much of Anne's work over the past 40 years has been focused on the recovery and restoration of the feminine archetype, which she sees as a crucial step in the recovery and restoration of the earth and the rebalancing of power that needs to take place in order for that to happen. Well, I couldn't agree more. And in this conversation, Anne and I talk about how the imbalance of power came to be in the first place what we can do to restore balance in our personal lives and in the culture at large, and how we are being called to create a new story to live by and pass on to future generations, a story that recognizes that we are a part of a sacred web of life. Well, I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. And if you value these kind of conversations and want them to continue, please consider supporting the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes, sharing with your friends, or by becoming a monthly Patreon subscriber, where you'll get early access to new episodes, podcast extras, and the complete podcast archives. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. And you could also support my work by purchasing one of my yoga courses or books, which you can find at brianjames.ca. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Anne Baring on The Medicine Path.
my great pleasure to welcome Anne Baring back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today, Anne. It's a great pleasure, Brian. Lovely. Well, um, first of all, let me just ask how you're holding up during this pandemic. Has it affected you at all? Yes, it has. The isolation has affected me from my grandson and daughter and also just from seeing anybody uh, because we really feel quite cut off to elderly people in the house all alone. And um, it's lonely and it's got to the point now where we've, we've had enough. Everybody's had enough. I think the whole country is, is bursting at the seams <laughs> with frustration and exhaustion. So those are people who've got children, for instance, trying to teach them and everything and manage a business or two businesses. Uh, people are exhausted. Yeah, it's the same here in Canada, for sure. Um, we're all getting a little bit um, squirrely, getting some cabin fever. And uh, I, I've just booked actually my first in-person events in a year starting this week. Um, I decided just to take the risks, do it uh, at a community acupuncture studio where they've got all the protocols in place. But I just really needed to be in a room with other people doing something meaningful. Yeah, because we, we need relationships. I, that's just what I've been sort of thinking about. We, we starve if we don't have relationships with other people. I mean, we starve emotionally. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, this doesn't quite cut it. You know, as wonderful as it is to be able to connect with people all over the world through this medium, uh, there's a flatness to it. And we don't get to communicate with our whole bodies. There's certain things that um, that we get unconsciously, I think, from being in close proximity to people and seeing their faces and just uh, feeling people's energy, all of that. And I think, um, you know, we get cut off from something very deep and fundamental when we can't connect in that way. I think that's very true. And I think that in relation to our heart, which has a field that goes out beyond our body, it's probably that that connects when we meet other people. And we don't know it consciously, but it, there is an exchange of energy. And I think that's what we miss. Mm -hmm. So what have you been doing to keep your spirits up during this time? Well, I seem to be working harder than ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I seem to be writing or I seem to be giving talks or putting talks up on my website or, I don't know, communicating through lots of Zoom things and learning things, although I don't really want to learn anymore. I'm tired of, of taking information in and I don't mind giving it out, but, <laughs> but I feel saturated taking it in. Mm. So... Um, this afternoon, I was having a rest until I came to see you, which was nice. So I didn't do anything. But I've been doing a lot of research on Mary Magdalene. And um, that's what has interested me most, because things are really coming together after, I don't know how long, 20 years or so, since I first became really interested. Mm. And um, it's exciting because uh, scholars are coming forth more qualified than I am to prove what I've always felt, but haven't been able to prove myself, really. Yeah. Well, let me just preface um, before we get into that. One of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you now is um, because personally, I've really been wanting to hear from elders um, and especially 
someone I would consider a wise woman. Um, I've just been wanting that kind of clarity. You've seen a lot in your years and you've been through hard times before, I'm sure. And it can be very despairing to look out to the world and see what's going on and not know if I'm making a difference in the little things that I do in the, the small circles that I can reach if it's just all a drop in the bucket. And recently my wife and I watched um, a series of documentaries by Adam Curtis for the BBC and he calls it an emotional history of the West. And it was incredibly informative and illuminating as to how we got in the situation that we're in, in the dire situation. He takes a look at uh, what was going on politically in America, China, UK, and Russia, these major powers, looking at what was happening um, politically, economically, socially. And he gets into a little bit of behavioral psychology. Um, but I think what I like about your work is that and correct me if I'm wrong, that you would see that all of these things are really a symptom of a deeper issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really been the focus of your work for the past 40 years is looking at what is behind all of the problems that we see in the world on so many different levels in all of these different countries. And I think you're really getting to the root of it. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about today to help us get that deeper perspective on how we got to the situation that we're in now in the world. And I think through that, it might offer us some ideas as to get ourselves out of it and to do some healing and transformative work in the world. Well, yes, that's very interesting. I did watch one of those programs today that you sent me, the, the fourth one most recent, I think. And he certainly gives a panoramic um, overview of what's been happening in the last 40, 30, 40 years. But my research has definitely always been motivated by the question, where have we gone wrong? What has happened to the creative imagination in our species? What has happened to our respect for nature, um, what has happened to the idea that we li once lived in a sacred order and we knew that we lived in a sacred order, where did that go to and why did it go? So my two major books, that's The Myth of the Goddess and The Dream of the Cosmos, have been exploring those themes of why we lost touch with the heart of life and the heart of the cosmos, really, which the ancient civilizations were in touch with. They had a deep sense of um, awe and respect for the cosmos and also for nature. And they also had huge powers of observation that we've lost, particularly in the Neolithic era and the Paleolithic, way, way back. But gradually, um, from the Bronze Age on, we lost that faculty of looking inward or looking into the nature of what's behind um, physical reality, as it were, we haven't really been interested. Although we've had religions, those religions have not taken us into this inner world. They have not answered the questions. They have never asked the question, why are we here on this planet? <clears throat> so I think that um, these are the questions that preoccupy me. Uh, why am I here? What am I meant to be doing? 
what is my um, work supposed to be in this life? I found my work, and it's very clear to me that it was, it was to rescue the feminine value or to reestablish it or reinstate it. And to the extent that I've been capable, I have done that. And so I'm very pleased that I've been able to do that. And I've been given the possibility in the kind of life I've had where I've been supported financially, where I haven't had to worry terribly about earning my living. This has enabled me to give my whole concentration on this inner work, soul work, I call it, and on answering the questions that I've had ever since I was 20. Um, I was asking, I remember when I was at university, I was asking those questions and nobody was interested and they thought I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) What what were the questions you were asking? I was asking the same questions. What am I doing here? Why am I here? Who am I? Um, And my great journey to India, or rather two journeys to India, answered those questions because I got in touch with the very deep philosophical ground of of Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism as well. And that was at the age of 25 and 26, I was exploring all these countries and their cultures. And I was reading the texts and I was looking at the marvelous works of art from all these different civilizations. And that was laying the foundation for what I would write um, 30, 40 years later. Mm. I didn't know it at the time. But that's what I was doing. And I had, I had tremendous awe and respect for the people who made these works of art and who wrote these marvelous texts, particularly the Upanishads. Those are my favorite texts. And um, I, they drew me into them. And it was as if I rediscovered a life that perhaps I once lived in India or in the, probably several, China maybe. And, and I was drawn back into those cultures in this life in order to recollect or, or um, remember what I once knew in mm. those other lives. Yeah. Um, you sent me an article that um, kind of lays things out in such a clear way. And I was hoping that maybe you could kind of take us through the story of how we've gotten to where we are with um, a degradation of the feminine and how that's manifested through our culture. You, you kind of point at two pivotal moments in our history, one 4,000 years ago and then one 2,000 years ago. Could you kind of just lead us through that a little bit? Yes, well, what happened 4,000 years ago was the beginning of the shift from what I call the lunar culture, which was presided over by the image of the Great Mother, to the solar culture, which has been presided over by the monotheistic image of the Great Father. So we had the Great Mother probably for 25,000 years or more before we had the Great Father, and that was deeply imprinted in our soul memory, if you like. And then around 2000 BC or a little later, Um, there were certain happenings in the Middle East because that's where this was the focus of the change. There were many city-states there in in a place called Samaria and um, later Babylonia, which began to fight with each other. And they began to move people from an agricultural society into a warrior society. That was the major change that was made between 2000 BC and 500 years later, say, so that we then got into the age of the great empires. We had the Babylonian Empire, then the Assyrian, then the um, Persian, then the Roman, then the Greek, and then the modern empires. So we've had 
a, a succession of empires for 4,000 years virtually. Sargon of Akkad was the first man who conquered all the land between the Mediterranean and the uh, Red Sea and, and proclaimed, I'm the great conqueror sort of thing. And that, that was the theme of the next two to 3,000 years of a theme of conquerors, a theme of, of great men like Alexander the Great, for instance, who were extraordinary in what they did, but their theme was conquest. They weren't interested in anything else. And naturally they drew the young men of that time into this warrior culture. And if you weren't a warrior, you really were a shamed young man. You, you had to be that in order to be valued in the culture in which you live. So it set the pattern for young men having to be warriors and mothers and um, wives having to accept this situation. There was no alternative. And then you had the destruction of the crops and the, the destruction of the farming communities with all these marauding armies going over them. So you had a, a great pattern of suffering and loss and tragedy, which we don't hear about because we never thought about it really. Um, and this has gone on until still going on in the present day. I mean, look at Myanmar now, look at the Middle East. It's the same pattern. Mm -hmm. And it's utterly tragic that we can't get out of this um, mindset of, of conquest and power. So that's a very brief resume. If you want me to more, be more specific, I can go into the theological background of what happened with the first temple in Jerusalem, for instance. Mm. Well, I think it's just interesting to note that this um, kind of the warrior archetype coming forward in these cultures with the conquest and the will to power. Um, while war is quite different than it was then, it is now, it's very more detached. Um, but there's still that same kind of energy in the conquest, and it might be more economic conquest now that it's, it's, it's turned into and these kind of cold wars that happen between uh, people, corporations, and nations. So that energy still feels very much like it's present and driving things. I think it is. I think it's very much to do with the male psyche and how the male psyche has been programmed over these thousands of years to look to rivalry and look to overcoming your rival. And if you take it into the realm of business or into the realm even of um, technology, who's going to be the first to get to Mars. There it is, same story. And what mm -hmm. are we going to do when we get to Mars? Are we going to mess it up like we have done on the Earth? You know, these questions are not asked and the, the, the thrust is to get to the next goal, whatever it might be. It's the, it's the yang energy without any balance by the yin and feminine energy. Yeah, and just imagining if all the money, brain power, and resources to get to Mars, if that was spent on finding solutions for what we're facing here on Earth currently. And this is, you know, Elon Musk is someone who just had a child, and his only goal seems to be to get off this planet and to colonize Mars, a, a desert planet. Well, he's what in Jungian terms is called a puer eternus. He can't grow up. He can't take responsibility for what he's brought into the world, his child. All he can think of is his ambition, that he has to um, succeed in his goals. He's immensely wealthy, 
And there is apparently nothing to stop him. It, but there's tremendous arrogance there, and he's completely oblivious to it. And so are the other men, like um, Bezos and mm -hmm. um, what's the name of the Facebook man? Mm -hmm. Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. They're all arrogant, and they're all only interested in money. And the plight of the planet and the poor and the suffering and the lack of education and the lack of health doesn't interest them in the least. So there we are. Mm -hmm. Well, with Elon in particular, I can't help but think of the myth of Icarus. And, you know, with that kind of hubris, myth mythology tells us that there, there's going to be a fall. Well, I think there has to be. This is the, the hubris that the Greek tragedians always said, with this comes nemesis. And nemesis means the fall, as you rightly say, with the myth of Icarus. We can't go on going higher and higher and higher. And the, the illusion that we are the only intelligent people in the universe is complete crap, to use an English expression. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it, it's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. And then we think we're going to colonize the other planets or whatever. We're going to bring them our intelligence. Who do we think we are? What have we done that's so extraordinary that we dare to... Um, put these goals in the way we have and the technological goals and interfering even with the with the brain, putting things into the brain to improve it. Um, how are we, how do we, how, how we come to the point where we think we can interfere with the body's mirac miraculous organism in that way, wanting to improve it just for our own use, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Quote, unquote, <laughs> improve it. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you talk about how there was this shift from the um, the goddess religions. Um, you said something uh, so beautiful in that article that I was reading last night. I read it to Debbie because I was so struck by how perfectly succinct the statement was that at that time in the Paleolithic and Neolithic eras, creator was not separate from creation. Yeah, that's that's precisely the most important po point you picked up there because everything came forth from the womb of the great mother. So there was no separation between the creator and the creation. And with the God image, you have creation coming in as something separate, not out of his being, so to speak. Although I think it, it has come out of his being or its being, but it, it's a very, very different mindset uh, from all being part of one union or unity and the separation which comes with the creator being distinct and remote from his creation. He's not mm -hmm. present in his creation, although I think he is, but we get into yeah. the, God, the God image that we've created, which is not sufficient to describe anything really. But I do think here that quantum physics is changing our image of reality and is taking us back actually to the uh, old idea of the um, the great mother cultures that um, we're all connected at the deep subatomic level and we're all everything that we do you said in the beginning that what can i do that makes a difference in the world but everything we do everything we think affects this quantum plenum or quantum vacuum as they call it so we we do affect the whole in mm -hmm. whatever we do 
and and we just have to trust that what we're doing is a value and is not arrogant or harm harming life or harming nature and just do what we can to bring up our children in the best way we can to look after our animals to care for our plants all this is valuable yeah well um one of the things that you're putting forward as uh, being necessary for there to be real change is the adoption of a new story or the telling of a new story uh, that's that's really uh, a combination of what we know from science now and what the old religions have always known, um, that we are all connected, that uh, there is no separation between creator and the creation of which we're inseparable from. Um, there's uh, some beautiful work being done by people like Brian Swim with the Journey of the Universe series, mm -hmm. taking up uh, Thomas Berry's work. Um, and so I know that there are people trying to tell the story, but I'm not sure that I see it catching hold in the culture. And I wonder, I wonder how we can do that. How can we wake people up to this beautiful story? Well, I think that COVID may have helped because it has made people more introverted. The, the whole culture has been very extroverted up till now, and now it's been forced into introversion, and people have had more time to think and to read and to uh, reflect, really. Not to say that everybody's doing that, but I think a few more than did before are doing it. And I think people are questioning deeply, where are we going and why have we come into this climate crisis I mean, Sir Richard Attenborough has done more than almost anybody on the planet to wake us up with his extraordinary programs and his deep, passionate love of the planet and, and the earth, all species on it. So he's woken us up, I think, to awareness of what we've been doing, what we've been destroying without being aware that we were destroying it. Um, he's pointed to the fact that we've got far too many people, that we are um, outbreeding our possibility of survival even, because we're destined to reach 10 billion by 2050, I think. And we're now seven and three quarter billion. So all the time we're creating more people who are going to do more damage to the planet. That's one thing that could wake us up. Secondly, there are these pandemics, which won't, this won't be the only one, there'll be other ones which will come afterwards, possibly worse ones. And we can't protect ourselves forever against them by inventing new vaccines. Um, so this is something that will come. And if climate change, after sort of 10 years, we've got a 10-year window in which we can get ourselves off fossil fuels completely, which we may or may not do. Um, even with electric cars, we're using up huge amounts of minerals from the earth. So it's not a solution in itself. But we have 10 years, but after those 10 years, if we haven't done what we need to do, there is going to be mass starvation, lack of water, mass, far more um, people moving, trying to get away from areas that are too hot or too dry or where there's drought. So the movement that we've had of refugees or um, people trying to get away from Africa, for instance, from North Africa into Europe, will increase by millions, not just thousands. So that there's problems ahead that 
politicians are not really sufficiently aware of. And, and luckily, there are people like David Attenborough who are aware of it and other people, scientists, and Greta Thunberg, who is trying to wake people up. And she's playing the role of the Sybil in the ancient civilizations who got up on top of a mountain and shouted at people <laughs> to go home and stop fighting. And, mm. you know. So there are things happening in our time which are waking us up, I think. And certainly among the young all over Europe and well, all over the world, really, they are coming together through the internet this is facilitated their coming together, which is incredible, really, so that people in China can communicate with people in South America or, or wherever. That doesn't mean to say they can overthrow these dreadful regimes, like in, in Myanmar or in Russia, or in, um, I don't know where else, there's too many people in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, but it does mean that gradually there will be a, an in increase of the number of people who are saying this has to change. Yeah. And it may come from the energy of the young more than the wisdom of the old. Yeah, it was um, definitely something I've been thinking about recently. So the younger generation, what, what I kind of see in them is a complete refusal to take on the status quo and to perpetuate the kind of patterns, like the social uh, patterns that have been happening, you know, in the West for, let's say, a hundred years or maybe more, um, seeing like a real strong refusal to like take that on, take to, to not take on that way of life, and you know, I hear things from like CEOs saying, well, the millennials, they're unemployable. They just won't do what we tell them to do. And they won't work 10 or 12 hour days and they're refusing to do this. So they're unemployable. And uh, I think that that's kind of amazing. And maybe that's what's going to lead to some change, a change that will maybe come through a complete collapse and breakdown of the, of the economic systems. Uh, but maybe that's just what has to happen. Maybe there needs to be a real death in order for a rebirth. And I do see in the youth this uh, yearning for a, a different way of living that I don't see in my generation or previous generations. Mm. I see it too, because I have a 25-year-old grandson and, and I am very much in touch with uh, you know, what he's thinking. And he doesn't really know what to do either. He's kind of floating at the moment because he doesn't want to enter into any employment in case he gets stuck in it and can't get out. So he prefers to, he takes jobs. I mean, he's earning his living and everything, but little jobs, small jobs. He doesn't want to commit to any way of, of um, life, really. Maybe that is typical of what, what you have observed in uh, your own country. Um, there's a lot of anger and, and a lot of grief, really, because this grief that we've come to the point that we have without realizing that we need to change sooner. So it's left it to that generation that's coming up now in the 20s to 30s, who will have to inherit this mess and do something about it. And there may be great violence in the process of changing because there's so many people on the planet. And as I said, there will be hunger and there will be privation much greater than what we've got at the moment, which will cause 
more conflicts and things. So I, I don't, it's not a very pretty picture of the future. And I think young people can see that and, and are, um, well, both angry and alarmed by it, which is very understandable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it can be, you know, watching this uh, seven hour documentary series by Adam Curtis, like I, I told you earlier that I had to do it in, in small chunks because it was just full of like utter despair after watching this, like at the kind of enormity of the corruption. Um, I just feel sometimes so helpless. Like, what is it that I can do? Like anything I do will it actually make a difference as long as people like this are, are running these nations? Um, yeah. I think it will make a difference in the end because it's creating a substructure or a substratum of people who know that there has to be change and who are not corrupt and who are very deeply um, engaged with their heart in serving the planet in whatever way they are doing. And I think I've been told by... Um, sort of, might, you might call them channel messages, not to worry too much about the status quo. Don't get upset by too much by the corruption, by the cruelty, by the wars, by the repressions, because this will all change. It can disappear in, in a moment if we reach a sufficient level where the shift can actually happen. It may sound too optimistic or idealistic, but I think there's something like that might happen if you dwell too much on this, what's happening, what you've just mentioned. It depresses you so much and paralyzes you so that you're not able to live your life as you really should be living it. You're yeah. brought down to the level of what you think is dreadful instead of creating the new with whatever your life path is. I mean, now I'm now 89, I'm quite old. So looking back over my whole lifetime since I was 20, there has been an enormous change, um, not only in the political things, but in people's perception and uh, people's values, which are now being called into question. People are asking, what are my values? Are there any values to follow? What, what is the guide? And um, that, you know, they're asking these things. That they've gone beyond religion. Religion isn't offering anything. Um, at least not in this country, it isn't. So I think that one has to look deeper. What, what is my soul telling me to do? And Jung said this. He said if each individual asked himself or herself, is there something that I've overlooked that I could do, some, some idea that might come to me, just like it came to Greta Thunberg, you know, that came out of the blue to her, and she'd changed so much in that year or two that she's had. <clears throat> so I think that, one shouldn't despair because that is really to create more of the same. But to say that all that will pass eventually, it has to pass. We can't go on as we are. And I think these tyrants will die off. They're, they're quite old. They're in their 60s at the moment, most of them. So they can't live forever. So maybe another mm -hmm. 20 years. And um, <laughs> one just yeah. has to hope for change. I don't know what the theme of this television series is. Could you just tell me the theme? Because I've only watched one program and I couldn't really get the, the crux of it. Well, um, kind of a signature of his, his filmmaking style is that he draws from a number of 
different streams and he puts together things in a very artful kind of collage that gives you an emotional sense of history. Um, so it's hard to pin down exactly what the through line is, but uh Basically, it's showing how we've made a mess of things, and it's showing all the different ways that we've done that in uh, in the superpowers. Um, yeah, that that's basically it. And he doesn't offer too many solutions on the way out. Uh, you know, um, he just shows it as it is, sort of thing. Shows it as it is, and it does give you a picture of just how. Um, how kind of widespread the corruption is um, and how long it's been going on, how deep it goes into these power structures. Um, but the thing I, I came away from it most is I had just watched a, a video that you'd done on the shadow. Yeah. And in that video, you talk a lot about the will to power being one of the most destructive forces in uh, in history and that's your voice just kept coming up as i was watching this i just kept seeing examples of the will to power on uh, kind of very small personal levels you know activists working in in smaller circles and then on the larger scales it was always the same theme of the will to power and i just kept hearing your voice as i was watching this but it's really the only thing that people know because this is what they've lived with for 4,000 years. They, they can't think of anything changing unless power brings it about. And the rivalry between the great nations is, is all based on who is going to have the most power, who's going to get to Mars first, who's going to um, accrue the greatest wealth or, or whatever it might be over the other one. It's, there's never any idea of cooperation or um, working together to deal with whatever problems there are and to overcome them together, as all the peoples of the earth working together. And in watching one of those programs, I got just the impression that the people from time to time rise up against these terrible rulers and try to overthrow them, try to establish a new order, but they can't because the powers are too strong, the military power is too strong, and they, it's a massacre if they do go ahead sort of thing. So um, the question is how to change this underlying um, substratum of habit, always seeking power. And Jung said the only thing that can help is to raise the level of human consciousness so that we don't get stuck forever in this same pattern, because it is a pattern, it's a habit. And it comes from the fact that we're out of touch with nature because we are part of nature and we think we are apart from nature and we can do what we want to her. And that gives rise to the will to power over nature and the will to power over everything else. But the, the power is coming from nature. Do you see what I mean? It's coming from the universe yeah. and we are misusing it in the way that we're doing because we think that we need this in order to get everything done that we want to get done. But it's, um, um, I can't find, I'm not clever enough to find the words. It's a distortion of the creative power of life. Yeah, it's a total confusion. It's, it's like a egocentric uh, belief that the power comes from me rather yeah. than the power coming from nature and 
coming uh, through me. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, it's and that, rather than through me. Yeah, that's right. And because it comes through the human, it can get distorted. And that power, which is um, benign, can be used in a life-supporting way, in a generative way, or in a destructive, power-hungry way. It's about taking more than we're giving. That's uh, completely out of balance. Um, and that's the problem of it, uh, the ego consciousness that's so rampant in modern times. And I think, you know, what I appreciate about your work is that you trace the problem back. And one of the places you trace it to is to the, the stories told by the desert religions, these uh, patriarchal monotheistic religions that are so prominent. And that that's gotten, uh, that's, that's affected the individual psyche, the collective and individual psyche. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because a, a big part of the work that you're doing now is on trying to tell a fuller story of the role of Mary Magdalene in, um, in the Christian myth. Yes, well, that's a big, um, big sort of thing to, to follow up. But um I've I've lost the argument a little bit. You'll have to bring me back to where the first part that you were saying. Well, just looking at where this um, this will to power comes about, it's uh, a lack of recognizing the source of power being nature, the separation between man and nature, body and spirit, and one of the places you track that back to is in the the Christian myth, and the. Mm, degradation of the feminine in that myth. There's no place for her, really. No, and and this goes back nearly three thousand years to six hundred BC or BCE to what's called the first temple in Jerusalem, and there in six twenty one BCE there was a takeover by a group of very powerful priests called Deuteronomists, and they got rid of the um, Queen of Heaven who had that, at that time was ruler with the, um, with the king, so to speak. They were a partnership, masculine and feminine created together, created the world. They got rid of the feminine aspect so that they were only left with the male aspect. And that's what came down through Judaism from that time on. And no more was heard of the queen of heaven, who was also called divine wisdom and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was always feminine until Christianity and the um, fourth century, 325 AD Council of Nicaea, when the Holy Spirit became male. So we had the Trinity, the male Trinity, instead of having the Holy Spirit as, as female, feminine. That's one aspect. So we lost the feminine because Christianity took on from Judaism its image of God. And the feminine was missing in the image of God. Then they created the myth of the virgin birth of Jesus and the only son of God, etc., And that's carried on in Christianity. That's the great Christian myth. Then you have another myth in, in Islam to do with uh, Muhammad and, and a third one in, in Judaism, which has continued on the same path without the mystical aspect, which is carried by Kabbalah in Judaism. We have the mystical tradition known as the voice of the dove, which was the Kabbalistic tradition, which I think carried on the lost tradition from the first temple was destroyed. So that's a few facts, but also these Deuteronomists created the myth of the fall, which I think has been a catastrophic mistake 
and a catastrophic uh, burden on the Christian psyche. I don't know about the Jewish psyche, but the Christian psyche has had a terrible burden placed on it for 2,000 years, uh, believing that it was a sinful, um, that we were sinful beings and nothing could be further from the truth. We've become sinful because we believe we are sinful, <laughs> ridiculous as it may seem. But the idea that the humanity is in, es in essence sinful is utterly, utterly wrong and is a sort of um, crime really committed by these Deuteronomists who then passed it on to Christianity, took it up and, and it became the foundation of the Christian myth and the need for a redeemer. If we weren't so evil and so bad, we wouldn't have needed a redeemer to sacrifice his life for us. So this is all tied up together in a great mess of theology that's gone on for a very long time, two and a half thousand years. And so I blame the, the myth of the fall for a tremendous amount of wrongdoing in our culture and the treatment of children, believing that they were sinful when they came into the world, the um, pedophilia and the abuse by Catholic and Protestant priests of children monstrous, monstrous crimes that have really been generated by the lack of the feminine and by a male priesthood in the Catholic sense, in the Catholic um, religion. So there are many things that are all muddled together in creating the, the, the situation that we're in now. And I've been trying to work with the idea that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus and that she had children by him and that they were trying to regenerate the teaching of the first temple, which had come down through the Essene communities, which they belonged to. They were brought up in Essene communities, both of them. And um, they were trying to bring this back as this teaching that Jesus was giving out. We don't hear what Mary Magdalene was giving out, but she was probably teaching the women. And then she went to France and took her teaching to France and it managed to survive there for um, a thousand years until it surfaced in something called the Cathar heresy and the Church of the Holy Spirit there. But I, we haven't got time to go into that. But anyway, there's no question that she was ma not married to Jesus because it's absolutely clear from the Gospels even, without delving into the um, Nag Hammadi text, but in the Gospels it's clear that she was always accompanying Jesus and his mother and his sisters. And she um, was certainly at the Last Supper. And in fact, there's a new book being published in, in uh, the Netherlands just a week ago, which is about her and redeeming her image completely and bringing all the proof. It hasn't been translated into English yet, but it will be. And um, this book says that she was given the commission by Jesus at the Last Supper that she was to be the teacher of the disciples in the future. Mm. Don't get that from the from the um, Gospels at all. Mm. And also that um, she was, he called her the Migdala, the tower. She was to be a tower of light for the disciples and for all the people that he'd been teaching and, and also in France where she was teaching later on. So it's a totally different image of the relationship, a sacred marriage right at the beginning of Christianity, if they'd only had the wit to recognize it and to recognize her, but they turned it into this idea of the celibate son of God. Mm -hmm. 
and twisted the whole relationship into something that didn't exist really. So that was a crime, I think. I, I really feel very strongly about that, a crime um, by the Roman church quite deliberately. They turned her into a whore and in a sermon of 591, I think, she was um, um, labeled with this um, thing of being a whore and a prostitute. And it stuck all that way until 1969 when one of the popes took it off her. And she's now recognized as the first of the apostles. Yeah, so, I think I think you write that it was, uh, I believe, Pope Gregory who had conflated Mary Magdalene with another Mary in the Bible. And that's how this whole confusion got started. Yeah. And, and it could be corrected because it just wasn't historically accurate. But it's left this imprint in our in our psyche. That's how people remember her. Penitent whore. And that's so terrible. Can you imagine what she must be feeling up in the other world, having all this happen to her memory? And outrageous, but it's it's gradually changing. And I think that this book and possibly um, all the work that I'm doing about her will begin to change people's perception and realize that a great wrong has been done to her and to Jesus, and that they were really co-teachers, and that there was this sacred marriage, and this um, she was a very great woman in her own right. A great teacher in her own right, quite apart from her relationship. Well, I, I think we can imagine how, if we were all raised with an image of this, this couple, Mary and Jesus, uh, working together, teaching together, living together as man and wife, rather than the lone Christ sacrificing himself on the cross, you know, the Virgin Mary. <laughs> as one polarity and the the whore Mary as the other polarity. I think we can see how if we were presented with that other image of this union, uh, this collaborative relationship between a man and a woman, how that would have, you know, made things much different. It leaves a different impression on us. It gives us a different kind of pole star to follow. Um, but I guess my question is, is Christianity a little uh, beyond redemption at this point? Is it uh, even worth trying to rehabilitate? Uh, are we a little too far gone? I think the essence is there, but I doubt whether it can be recovered because it's been so buried. Because the essence of the teaching of Jesus, as indeed of the other great, like Buddhism and, and um, Hinduism, was that we carry a divine element in our nature. We are essentially cosmic beings, and we have this element which we can either reject or we can develop. And we, that message has been missed. We've, instead of being told we're divine beings, we've been told that we're sinful beings. So it's completely distorted the image of what we are. And that would be something I would want to restore in any new kind of religion or regeneration of Christianity. I want that original teaching to come through that each one of us is a child of God or a son or a daughter of God of whatever race we are. We don't have to be Christians, whatever ethnic group or color or race we are. All of us are children of the divine ground and we carry that divine ground. We're part of that ground. And that is where our creativity comes from and where our capacity for love comes from. 
um, our love for our children, our love for our animals, our love for all the great causes that we support. That comes from the divine element within our nature, and we don't know it. <laughs> mm. And I would want to bring that back. And I think Einstein said that if there was a new religion, it should be uh, one where all these things are brought together. There's not one, there are not many different religions, but there's one religion to bring the whole of humanity together. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that would be a knowledge of who we are. And there was a Greek philosopher called Parmenides who said, we are divine beings having a human experience. Mm. And that would be, to me, the theme of whatever new religion I would like to bring into being if I was young enough to do so, but I'm too old now. Okay, so okay. you're not so much interested in um, in rehabilitating Christianity per se, no. But uh, it's important for you that this story be corrected at this point. But you're not holding on to any any hope that Christianity is gonna is gonna change and evolve and take us into the future in a in a better way. No, I think it's too late for that. It should, it, it it's made so many mistakes in the last two thousand years in the appalling treatment of women for one thing, but also in all the conquests in the name of Christ all over the world, and but particularly South America and Central America, and the treatment of the indigenous people, trying to convert them to Christianity. It's made the most terrible evil. It's created evil, real evil. Um, so I don't think it's redeemable. I really don't. I would like to, I, I, I don't in any way want to disparage the belief of Christians who trust in the, what they've been taught and who really believe in, in Christ as the redeemer and, and pray to Mary for help. All that is valid and necessary for them, and I wouldn't ever interfere with that. But there's something absolutely rotten at the core of, of Christianity that I think needs to be addressed. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, um, bringing, <laughs> bringing the fact that we are divine beings having a human experience into the popular culture, because in the circles that we run in, we're all agreed on that. Like we all know that we, you know, we have the experience of, of being a soul in a body and there being a soul in the world. Everybody that I hang out with, you know, that's our, that's our worldview. Um, but I guess I feel sometimes that we're like in these little bubbles, you know, and we're just kind of talking to each other, but I was really heartened by a film I saw recently by Pixar called soul and it, it's a film for kids, but also parents, you know, adults can get a lot out of it too, but it's bringing this idea into the popular culture in a really fun and engaging way. And I, I thought that was a really good sign that maybe um, some of this stuff can get more into the mainstream, because I think that's really what's needed, right, is to have that understanding of who we are at our core, that there's something more than... Yeah. The ego that shows up and, you know, is just expected to, to work hard and, and buy all the things. And, right? <laughs> I think that's a lovely idea. And I think it, humor is absolutely essential. And um, working it with children, telling children a new story in that sort of way, I think is absolutely fantastic. And that is how it can get into the culture. Um, the stories that I don't remember from my own childhood, but they're certainly... Children's stories have the magic to change people's consciousness. They can do that. And I was going to say one more thing if there's time, Brian. I want to talk a bit about scientific materialism. 
because I think that is where this ego has come from, this strengthening of the ego. If people believe that there's nothing beyond this physical reality, and if the cosmos is dead and going nowhere, so to speak, and mm -hmm. if we are the only intelligent people in it or conscious people in it, um, nobody's going to take care of the planet and nobody's going to care about our relationship with the cosmos or whether we have a soul. And if we're told that the brain, um, when the brain dies, consciousness dies with it, so many people will commit suicide and are committing suicide or dying, believing that terrible belief. And they're going to get an awful shock when they find they're not dead on the other side. I hope so. They're going to have to adjust. And But it would have been nice if they could have been prepared and they didn't mm. have to believe that this is the end as they're dying, but rather looking forward to the new life in, in the other dimension. It's that That is another great wrong that I think both there's both the, the church and the, the science, which isn't yeah. to contradict the marvelous discoveries of quantum physics and, and things like that. But it's the, the materialist conception that all we're here for is to procreate and consume. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's no surprise. Like, I love what Jung said, that any experience of the soul is going to be experienced as a defeat by the ego. Right? Because it challenges that notion yeah. that the ego is all we are. And <laughs> so as a defense scientific materialism works really well. So the ego can go, no, that's all we are. Consciousness is created by the brain. When we die, we become worm food and that's it. That's it. And so why not have the will to power? Let's get what we can. Yeah. While we're here, let's make the most of it. Let me get mine. Yeah. yeah. And let's do down the other man in case he gets there first. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important that, um, we start telling this this new old story because really it's an old story that we're trying to tell here, but we're trying to tell it in a new way that the scientific materialists um, can also grasp because it's it's backed by science. Um, I think it's really important that we start telling that story when uh, people are really young. Uh, in those formative years to give them the notion that there's something more, that the experiences that they have, the things that they know when they're young aren't wrong. And they're not just uh, fantasies, youthful fantasies to be outgrown uh, when you got to, you know, get serious about life. Um, so I love like, you know, if we could see more our cartoons that have this element there's also a, a series by an Irish animation company that is uh, very beautiful and shamanic and mythological. The you know telling the stories of the heroines um, going to meet the the forest spirits and the the sirens of the sea, the the selkies, and all these beautiful old myths are being um, kind of updated and rejuvenated. And that to me, I think is. Uh, really like where we can make a big change is to to yeah. speak to the the very young children and uh, let them know that they're not wrong that there is something more that the world is magical magical that you've got the right word there because that's really young children need to grow up with that feeling and they do have it when you see them exploring and everything you can see how they touch things and how you know how a, a sense of fascination is there and and it's all magic mm. 
And particularly when they're with animals, you know, how, when you put them with, with uh, baby chickens or, or baby pigs or baby lambs or whatever, they, they have an instinctive love of those animals as they caress them in their hands and things. Mm. I've been um, kind of playing around with this idea, thinking about trauma and trying to really get at the core of what we call trauma and really like, what is that? And the thing that I keep coming back to is you know, this idea that trauma is a, a disconnection from the wonder that we knew as children. And wonder being both a state of being, so being in wonder, being in that state of awe, um, but also that it's a verb. It's something that we do. And when we wonder, we're open and we're curious about life. And that those early traumas can really cut us off from that. And that is um, is soul defeating or soul deflating in a way. And so I keep coming back to this because I wanna find something simple to help people understand like what's needed in order to stay connected to life and stay open and interested in life and to want to serve life. Uh, because when you're in wonder of life, you want to serve it. You know, it's yeah, humbling. It it's humbling. That's right. Well, I think what you're talking about is moving from the head to the heart. It's opening to awareness of heart-centered consciousness, which is opening to wonder, opening to love, opening to connection and relationship, and not all the time thinking, what am I going to do next in order to get somewhere? It, it, it's a totally different framework, and it puts you in touch with nature, and it puts you in touch with the creative right hemisphere of the brain, the imagination, because that's been closed down too with this uh, materialist philosophy. But where are the great stories that we've had from the past? You know, we, all we have is, is war um, films on television or crime. Those are the two things, war and crime or sex, three things. Um, but there's, there's nothing really to get the imagination going and, and um, moving, as you say, with a sense of wonder and discovery. And there's so much to be discovered still. And children have it if you don't interfere and if you don't clutter their minds up with too many exams and things that they've got to learn, they can have a bit, be nourished by their parents or by a teacher. I had wonderful teachers as a child and I never forgotten those teachers who kept alive my interest in literature and poetry. Because mm. that, poetry is very important to read to children so they get a sense of rhythm and the beauty of the words, and that enters into their soul and develops their soul. Mm -hmm. so, and, and also painting, they must paint as much as possible or work with clay. Mm -hmm. Wood, you know, do something with their hands to connect their, their heart with their hands. What do they enjoy making something. Yeah. So to nourish that, uh, that openness, curiosity, I like what you said about it being heart centered. Of course, yeah. I agree. But what that also points me to is that it moves away from a kind of egocentric knowing, which I think um, concretizes things and tries to, you know, kind of kills them. If we think we know something, we kind of like freeze it in time or something, you know, it stops living in our consciousness. Um, yeah. So I like that, but it's also, yeah, like the state of unknowing and uh, what that can do if we're curious and open and, and humble is we can get to a place of understanding with others. Mm. 
we can sharing. Yeah. And very much about connecting from the heart and being curious about the other person and wanting to understand them. Cause it's at the root a lot at a lot of the uh, conflict that I'm seeing out in the world these days is people are very strong in their opinions about the way things are and the way things should be done. Mm -hmm. And all we're seeing is people crashing into each other with these belief systems. You know. Yeah, because they're holding on to what they think is safety in what they know kind of sure. thing. And if they're feeling safe, the other person is going to be different and therefore unsafe. Yeah, challenging their safety and security. Their security, yeah. Which is founded on a, a belief. Yeah, and this is all coming out on the terrible attacks on people, like I said in my shadow thing, on the internet. You know, people on Facebook attacking people or on, on Twitter or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Their first instinct now is to attack in order to feel secure themselves. And I think to get a taste of some of the power that's behind, um, you know, the, the leaders of industry and nations. But I think on the individual level, in our own little small way, we'd love to have a taste of that power, too. Because when faced with all of that that's going on in the world, we can feel so powerless. You're powerless. Yes, you're absolutely right. I'm sure that's what it comes from. And then you get into a habit, you get into a rut, really, of, of attacking whatever you want to attack, like this cancelling culture. And you can't, you can't stop, because to stop means that you're humiliated, and you can't bear humiliation, because then you're powerless again. <laughs> exactly. You have to repent, and you have to admit that I was wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading this uh, great book by um, Edward Edinger right now, Ego and Archetype. And he's got this beautiful chart of what kind of healthy ego development would look like. And there's there always starts with the inflation, like, you know, the kind of identification with the deity that happens when we're children naturally. You know, I'm hungry, I cry, there's a breast. Wow, I must be a god or something. <laughs> and the, the first time that that request isn't answered, it's a it's a defeat to the ego. And that yeah. starts a healthy separation between the you know the inner god image and the ego as it develops but the crucial thing that happens is that break that kind of letdown the the defeat of the ego that then you know comes the repentance that oh okay i'm not god i'm not all powerful i can be wrong too and then come back into the fold and be accepted as just a, a human being who makes mistakes and so this cycle helps to build a healthy ego that's detached enough from the deep self that it can be healthy and not inflated all of the time. But I think in the online world, they get into this um, kind of oscillation between the, the inflation, but there's never quite the defeat because you can always just block people. So you never really have to admit you're wrong. So this healthy ego development isn't, is a kind of, is is retarded in that world and we're not getting that um you know that act of repentance the admittance of of wrong and no, it's too easy on the, on the internet on, on twitter or whatever to just say whatever you want and there's no one to answer you back yeah <laughs> you know and say maybe, and also all these negative projections as jung called them they come from the fact that the instinct is unhappy and is not in touch with what it wants to be. So it comes out in a distorted form. It comes out in this, what I call this shadow behavior. 
um, because it's not being used creatively. Mm. It's blocked from being creative and it can only come out in this negative form mm -hmm. and attacking other people. It's a very serious problem, I think. I mean, it can ruin people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the thing that, um, that I always come back to with that is what I'm seeing is a kind of yearning for destruction to take down the old order and i completely get that i think things really do have to change like we have to rebuild from the foundation up but the thing i'm not seeing is the vision for the future what that's going to look like and so all of the energy is put into destruction and i'm trying to encourage people to work with their imagination to rekindle that the, their own visionary capacity, because we need a vision for the future of what we're going to build, or at least a number of different possibilities that are generative and creative and um, life-fulfilling and life-serving. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think get people to write fairy stories. That's quite a good way. That's what the Jungians always did with their first patients who came in. They said, write a fairy story. Hmm. And just see what comes out. Just let the pen flow and see what comes out. But also I was thinking, um, as you were speaking, that there's a, a, a very wonderful organization called uh, Humanity Rising now, started by Jim Garrison, who is head of Ubiquity University, which I was a faculty member of until very recently. But every day he's got people coming to speak about how we can create this new civilization, what we have to leave behind mm -hmm. and what we have to bring in. I think you'd be very interested in that. But every single day, he's got different speakers coming. It may take up too much time, but he's done this now since May last year, every week since May, except for Christmas break. And he's had wonderful people coming. And you, you can see how many organizations have joined up and how many individuals have joined up if you go to that website, Humanity Rising. So that's one very positive thing because he's gathered together. He's like a magnet. He's drawing all these iron filings together of people who want a different kind of civilization and who want to come together to create it. And they're brilliant people. I mean, marvelous people. I've listened to a great many of them speaking from all walks of life and from all professions and from all kinds of organization, whether charitable or not. So that's one very powerful influence. And there's, there are other ones. There's the Shift Network in America which has all the time teaching, uh, different teachers come along who have courses. There's one on the whole understanding of survival of death, for instance, by a man called Dr. Eben Alexander, which is going on at the moment. And he had a near-death experience when he nearly died um, because of a brain infection. And he lost his conscious mind completely and went into the other world, came back again, and it was a miraculous cure. The doctors didn't think he'd come back, but he did. And he came back with the memory of what had happened to him over there, so to speak. And he, he's written two books about it. But there's that sort of thing going on if people know about it. So I would recommend the two things, Humanity Rising and the Shift hmm. Network for different kinds of thinking. And yeah. gradually, I mean, they may start with 5,000 people, which grows to 50,000, which is then grows to... 500,000, you know, it's like a sort of snowball. 
Yeah. And of course, there's the whole psychedelic renaissance happening right now, which is helping people wake up to their own spiritual nature, but also to the living cosmos, which... Yeah, uh, I, I think that America has made it legal now to, to take uh, psychedelic drugs so this week, I think. Mm, yeah, more and more in different states and countries. Uh, it's, it's opening up at an incredibly rapid rate. So there is... There is a light on the horizon. And yeah, the, the different lights. There are different lights, and they need to make one big light. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully all of these like little lighthouses will just start to um, illuminate the dark places more and more. And I, I just really appreciate the work that you're continuing to do, even when, you know, you should be retired and just tending to the garden. You're still uh, clarifying your thought. Your voice is so strong. And it's an honor for me to have the opportunity to speak with you and also to contribute to your legacy in my own little way, just by sharing some of your um, your words and thoughts. You've got a, a beautiful new website, which I think is just amazing. There's so much content in there. It's really well organized. I'm so happy to see that uh, that you've been able to do that. And you're still putting out uh, talks on YouTube and writing articles. So I'm going to link to all of those things. And um, just, you know, big thanks from me. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Well, it's lovely for me to have an outlet for my thinking and my voice because one does feel quite isolated at my age. And I'm too old for gardening now. <laughs> <laughs> too hard I, on the knees. <laughs> yeah, I can't get down and do things. But it's so lovely to talk to you, a kindred spirit, and thinking along this way of, of the new story bringing, or the old story bringing it forward. Mm. So thank you very much indeed. Lovely yeah. to talk, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Okay. Bye for now then. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by purchasing one of my yoga video courses or books. You can find links to everything at brianjames.ca forward slash resources. Thanks so much for your support. Without listeners like you, independent creators like me couldn't do what we do. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine upon your face until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.